Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. So, last week I shared a couple of stories uh, to try to paint a little picture of um, what kind of culture we're living in now compared to several, you know, over 100 years ago to where we're at today. Our culture is different. It's changed. And as believers, there's this word that I went to define a little bit. It's called contextualization. Can you say it with me? Contextualization, right? It's a fancy word. Uh, Tim Keller says, contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture. To contextualize is to tailor the presentation of the gospel in light of the wider sociological context in order to achieve greater understanding. Okay, if you missed all of that, one way you contextualize, maybe you've done it before, but have you gone on a missions trip before? Okay, what do you do before you go on a missions trip? You pray and you fast, you seek the Lord, all those things, but you study the culture you're about to go into. You look at the church history in the culture. You look at the political climate within the culture. You look at the language and things maybe you shouldn't say or shouldn't do. Um, I went to a mission trip in Mexico. I did one in Iraq. Two completely demographics. I had to study just a little bit in both cultures and there's things you should do, things you shouldn't do. But for most of us when in America here, when it comes to contextualizing, we do it in other cultures, in other countries, but we never really thought about doing it here. And I want to say to you clearly, now is the time to do that. We used to have a baseline of a Bible-believing nation. Most people were, uh, had somewhat of a background with church and God in the Bible, but mostly in our culture anymore, it's not like that, right? We need to contextualize a little bit. We need to realize we're in a different kind of setting, if you will. Can you throw up? The first slide. So why should we contextualize? Here's one reason we should contextualize, right? I believe it is the responsibility of the Christian worker to present the gospel clearly within their current social context. That is to speak using terms that would be helpful for the hearers in understanding the gospel. Right? The reason you should think about a culture you're about to go into or the culture we're currently living in is because you want to be able to speak clearly to them the gospel message so that they might understand what you're saying. Does that make sense? Are you okay with that? Does that seem fair and good? Right? You want people to understand the gospel. Do you want that? Okay, next slide. Another reason. We must contextualize. I believe it is the responsibility. All right, I've used that word twice, responsibility. You guys okay with that word? It's you and I's responsibility. The Christian worker to present the gospel purely, as in without mixture, within their current social context. That is to speak only the truths of the gospel so that the hearer may believe the gospel. It's up to you and I 
to speak pure truth to people of the gospel. Not mixing this or that, but we want to speak clearly and we want to speak purely to the culture we're currently living in concerning the gospel. If you agree with that, you can say amen. Amen. So we looked at two examples last week. We looked at Acts 13 and we looked at Acts 17. Okay, just a quick review. We read Acts 13, Paul was in the synagogue and we read about maybe 30 to almost 40 verses and the overall summary was this. In that message, Paul made at least 26 references to Old Testament scripture. He mentions five Old Testament characters by name. He makes five direct quotes from the Old Testament. And he makes reference to at least nine different Old Testament stories. Okay, so he's in the synagogue. That's his setting. And he releases the gospel using a whole lot of Old Testament scriptures, which is what they only had, to make the gospel clear to them. Then we went into Acts 17. He's in a place called the Areopagus, which was more of a public setting where you had philosophers, you had some religious people, you had some political people. But it was in a public setting, and he preaches the gospel. And here's a brief summary of what he said. He mentions zero Old Testament characters by name, has zero direct quotes from the Old Testament, And he shares zero Old Testament stories. But how many references did he make in the Old Testament? Indirectly, you guys remember that number? At least 17. Okay, so Acts 13, he's in the church, he's in the synagogue. There's a lot of Old Testament scripture coming forth as he's sharing the gospel. Now Acts 17, He's in Athens, more of a public setting. He doesn't mention a whole lot of Old Testament characters or stories or even direct quotes. Matter of fact, he actually quotes one of their, one of the Athenians' philosophers. And yet he shares the gospel and he ref- makes at least 17 references to the Old Testament. This is what you call contextualization, right? He wanted to speak clearly to the hearers, but also in a way that was pure truth. There's no mixture to it. Craig Keener, on Acts 17, he says, Paul preaches in different ways to synagogue audiences, to rural pagans and cultured members of the urban Greek elite. Adaptation to local color was an essential feature of rhetorical skill. Ancient interpreters associated Paul's adaptability here with the strategy he articulates in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 19 through 23, where he says, he talks about, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To those without law, I became without law. To the weak, I became as weak. All for the benefit of the gospel. Here, Paul contextualized biblical revelation with more language intelligible to Greek intellectuals. So I just mentioned the importance of us understanding our culture that we're now living in. And there's a book I wanted to make mention of. It's called Understanding the Times by David Nobel and Jeff Myers. In this book, they go over the six predominant worldviews that we are now facing. You guys know the six? (laughs) 
No. Let me tell them, I, it, my, I meant to bring my book out and it's in the office. Man, what is it? Oh, wait, I think it is. Here we go. So there's three, three isms. Okay, Marxism, secularism, and postmodernism. The three isms. And then there's two of them that end with T-Y. Okay? New Age spirituality and Christianity. And the third one, Islam. Six. Can you guys repeat them here? You guys know them? Amen. Amen. Anyways, that's what our culture looks like right now. And as the church, do we know how to come up against those things? Maybe not. Continue to move forward here. So just a little bit more review. Talked, I gave us some... Um, talked about seven keys to engaging in fruitful gospel conversations out of Acts 17. Seven keys to engaging in fruitful gospel conversations. Anybody remember the first one? Relationship. Man, y'all are on it this morning, right? It's important that we build relationship, okay? In this generation, if we're unwilling to build relationship, we won't be able to have the ear of the person. That's important. I know a lot of times we think, eh, just, I'm just going to say what I need to say to this person because God told me I don't really care about them. I just need to say it. Okay, you go ahead and do that, right? But I, I'm assuming it won't go over very well. And that we need to maybe slow down a little bit to get to know people around us who don't know Jesus. So building relationship was crucial with them in Acts 17. And specifically, verse 17, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily. So he was building relationship as he was reasoning and as he was sharing the gospel. Remember that phrase about embracing the cactus? I shared how sometimes we can be so awkward. We look at non-believers as a cactus and God is saying, go hug them. And we're like... Like, Lord, do I really have to, like, be around? Like, I'm going to get poked, right? I'm gonna, they're going to say something that I don't agree with, and then I'm in a tiff, and I don't want to know what to do anymore. But we need to embrace the cactus. We need to get a little more comfortable. We need to get less awkward around people who have different views than us. Are we able to do that, church? Can you have a conversation with someone who is totally not living a biblical lifestyle and not get angry and want to shove the Bible down their throat. Can you do that? Relationship. We need to invest in a little bit of relationship. Think about your daily routine. Think about your job. Who in your job are you building a sincere relationship with because you want to get to know them and it might lead to you sharing the gospel with them. Or even them being interested in your life, okay? I'm not saying you just got to walk around all the time and go to the store and see all these people and now you got to build a relationship with 50 people in the grocery store. It's not doable. Think about your daily routine. Who do you see on a regular basis that you can start building a relationship with? What was the second key? Respect, okay? In this passage, the first 
verse 16, Paul sees these idols and he's angry. His spirit is stirred. He's not doing well. And then if you look down in verse 22 to 23, it says that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inspection. You notice the difference in his tone. He was first stirred in spirit, really angry at what he had seen. But when talking to the person, he displayed maybe a little bit of the fruit of the spirit, maybe a little bit of gentleness when he shared with them. In order to respect people, we maybe have to find a way to value them, to honor them. Doesn't mean you agree with everything they say and everything they do, but if you don't want to honor, if you don't want to place value on someone, you won't have their respect, you won't have their ear, and they won't have yours. What was the third reasoning? Oh, gave it away. The third key was reason. Okay, so Paul was in Athens. He was reasoning with them. And he reasoned so well, they began to ask questions. Hey, we want to hear more about your faith. That's 1 Peter 3.15, right? Giving a reason for the faith that you have within you. When's the last time somebody asked you a reason? Brandon, when's the last time someone asked you a reason? We talked about a little bit with reasoning, getting into these conversations with people, apologetics, right? Being able to discern truth in the midst of a conversation. One of the things I mentioned to you, maybe ask questions when you're talking to people, when you're reasoning out truths of the Bible or about God. Make sure you fully understand what they're saying before you maybe give your commentary. Because maybe they'll want to hear what you have to say. I'm telling you, it goes over a lot better if they are actually interested in what you have to say versus you having to force what you have to say. It'll go over a lot better. Doesn't that work like in marriage too? Like what? I'm no expert, but, okay, there's a, the resource I just mentioned, Understanding the Times by David Nobel, Jeff Myers. I encourage you guys to grab that. That's going to help uh, paint a picture of what we're facing and being able to reason, being able to give a defense of the gospel, of the Bible, of who God is. <clears throat> One of the things that we need to brush up on when it comes to contextualizing and reasoning is that we need to be able to answer questions the culture is asking. For example, they're talking about LGBT. They're talking about racism. They're talking about politics. They're talking about abortion. We have to be able to give a biblical response, a biblical answer to those things. If we are unable to do that, if we fail to contextualize and do that, I believe the church will become irrelevant and outdated. If we fail 
to speak what the word says about the hot topics in our culture, if we don't do that, we will become irrelevant and outdated. So, what answers do you have for those things? Versus, for example, the issue of abortion. Instead of saying it's just wrong, you shouldn't do that. We have to maybe give a little bit more commentary on why it's wrong. Through the word, what does God say about that? I know you have your opinion, I have my opinion, but what does the word of God say? Right, I see all these, these you know, popular pastors, they go on you know, the news or they go on some show and they'll ask them, you know, so do you think somebody can be gay and God still loves them? And they start giving their opinion. And I'm thinking, what, what do you, don't do that. No, what the easy thing to do is to say, hey, okay, I understand this is a hot topic, but I'm just going to say what the Bible says. And if you want to, you know, stone me, that's fine, but I'm just saying what this says. That's all I'm saying. I have my opinion and I have my thoughts and my feelings, but what does this say? That's a lot safer than you getting into hoopty hula and all this other stuff. But you have to be able to do it. You have to be able to reason well and speak and be able to, be able to answer the questions that people are asking these days. What was the fourth key? Redemption, okay? At some point in time, you have to be able to communicate the gospel. You have to be able to share God's story, okay? Not with 50 scriptures and all of this and that, right? Because people are probably not going to understand a lot of that context. But you have to be able to communicate the gospel in a clear way, right? One of the keys to helping you do that is that you have to actually know your own story. How did you get saved? Does that align with scripture? Does that align with the gospel? Will that connect with the gospel? A lot of times when I share the gospel with people, I insert my story to make it somewhat relatable. Let's read Acts 17, verses 24 um, through 31. We're gonna look at, real quick, the message Paul preaches, and we're going to take kind of a bird's eye view, and I want to give you just a couple of key things that you should think about when engaging in gospel conversation. Okay, so he wants to, he wants to preach to them the, the unknown God, and he's like, him, I, pro- I proclaim to you, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of all, or sorry, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not think that the the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. 
because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So, Paul sharing this message to people without a Christian background. Four maybe helpful tips for you to think about when sharing the gospel. There should be some type of introduction of God. Specifically, the God of the Bible. You don't have to quote references per per se, but notice what Paul says. God, who made the world and everything in it. Genesis 1. Some type of introduction of God. Who is he? Number two, Paul mentions in verses 27 through 29, the dilemma of man. That man is called to seek God, but instead man is over making images to worship God. And what else, what's the primary dilemma of man? Sin. Sinfulness. You're probably going to take some time in the conversation with someone. This is where it can get maybe awkward. Convincing them that sin is real and that they are found in it. Right, Because we're living in a culture, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. There's no baseline anymore. You can call that sin, but I call that good. We have to be able to communicate that you, we are in a dilemma. Sinfulness. Have you ever lied before? Have you ever cheated before? That's sin before God. I understand you may say that's not sin, but in the Bible, that is sin. The, sec- the third thing that Paul addresses, he introduces the man. So he introduces God of the Bible. He talks about the, the dilemma of man, and he preaches Christ. When you look in the book of Acts, every message, there's a center focal point. Guess who it is? Jesus He came to reveal who God is. He came as the Messiah. He came as the anointed one of God. He's just not a prophet. He's just not a good moral guy. No, he's the son of God. And we have to maybe press people to make a decision about him. I've had a couple conversations with people and there's this idea out there where they they totally agree that Jesus is real, like he lived. And they say, yeah, I believe he's a prophet. He did good works. Like, he has really good teachings. I actually take some of his teachings in my own life. And they're sharing this with me, and I'm thinking, like, wait. He's just been reduced to just a a prophet, a good teacher. But Jesus comes on the scene, and he's forcing everyone to make a decision. I'm the only way. There's no other way. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one the Father sent. Like I I looked at his face before I came down. And now I'm going back to him. So if you're in a conversation with someone and they say, yeah, Jesus was a good good guy, you know, good teacher, a prophet like Muhammad and other people, we have to press the issue and say, hey, well, wait, who who does Jesus say he is? He says he's more than a prophet. He came from God. He's God in the flesh. 
The last thing you'll see in the gospel presentations in the book of Acts is a response. The disciples were looking for a response. They are pressing the issue for a response. Either you accept him or you reject him. Look at verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. We have to press the issue. When it comes to the gospel, people need to make a decision. There's a little bit of give and take here. You're not forcing them, but you want to maybe strongly encourage them. And if you have to leave the conversation and it's a 50-50, you don't know, it's okay. But we have to figure out a way. We have to communicate in such a way where people make a response. They make a decision about Jesus. That's what they did in Acts, right? You guys want to live like the book of Acts? That's what they did. Okay, the fifth key. Anyone know what that is? All right, if you just said something, you just made it up because we haven't done it yet. It's okay, we forgive you. The fifth key to engaging in fruitful gospel conversation is reliance. Reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Oh my God. This is absolutely crucial. This is absolutely integral. This is absolutely necessary. If you missed all the points, please get this one. Reliance upon the Holy Spirit. In this passage and in the book of Acts, this past week I read through dozens of stories where they, either they preach the gospel or there's some type of activity going on, a healing, a miracle, something. There's one common denominator, Holy Spirit, every single time. Every single time, Holy Spirit is doing something. He's up to something. A guy named Michael Green wrote a book about evangelism in the early church, and he said, it is a common place that the main theme of Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit, and that he is the supreme agent in the Christian mission. Yet this is the very factor which is most often forgotten in assessing conversion in the early church. The Christians were convinced that the spirit of Jesus had come into their midst and indwelt their very personalities in order to equip them for evangelism, for making him known to others. The church received the spirit not for selfish, secret enjoyment, but to enable them to bear witness for Christ. Every initiative in evangelism recorded in Acts is the initiative of the Spirit of God. As I've read that and thought about it, I've had to think about repenting to the Lord, repenting to the Holy Spirit, because I've basically put him in this category of you are for my personal enjoyment, my personal pleasure. That's it. 
you'll teach me a couple things, you know, you'll move through me a little bit. But that's mostly been my experience with the Holy Spirit. He is my personal pleasure tool. But in the early church, he was the boss. He would tell you or me what to do, and we would do it. And yes, there were times of communing and fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. I do that. You should be doing that. But what about when he says, hey, it's time to go to work? Do we just say, no, Holy Spirit, like, I just want, like, you, the one over there, I want that one. I don't want the work part of this. It's, I'm afraid, it's awkward, I don't know what to say, and, uh. But in the book of Acts, he was the CEO, he was the manager, he was the boss. As I read through multiple accounts in the book of Acts, where the gospel is being preached or there's some type of activity, I've noticed the Holy Spirit would manifest in three different ways. He would operate under three different uh, realities. The first way... I would say he operated in a manner of Isaiah 61. Okay, track with me here. You read a story in the the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit's the common denominator, and he's doing something, he's active. The first way, Isaiah 61, where he's sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to comfort those who mourn. In other words, the Holy Spirit came upon a disciple and they went forth and brought healing, deliverance, or restoration. Isaiah 61. Okay, Acts 3. Peter met a lame man, Solomon's porch. He heals him. For the next chapter or two, it's a whole debacle because healing broke out. The gospel was preached. But the Holy Spirit came as Isaiah 61, if you will. The second way the Holy Spirit, when he begins to move and do some activity, is the Joel 2 encounter. What happens in Joel 2? Outpouring of the Holy Spirit, prophecy, and visions, and dreams. There's a prophetic encounter. Well, we know in Acts 2, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, According to Joel 2, if you look at Acts 10, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a God-fearing man. He has a dream, or he has a vision. In the vision, God tells him to go find a man, Peter. And this guy hadn't received Christ yet. But he's having a Joel 2 encounter, a vision. And then Peter has a vision. And God tells him, Whatever I call clean, don't call unclean. They meet together. Peter preaches the gospel to the whole household. They all get saved. In other words, there are going to be times when you are out and about and someone actually comes to you seeking Christ. 
Cornelius was seeking out Peter to know Jesus. So number one, Isaiah 61, the Lord anoints you, a work happens, you heal, you deliver, something happens through you. God comes upon you, do it. Joel 2, God does something over there and he calls you to speak into it. He's already moving in someone else's life at work and all of a sudden you have a conversation with them and they're telling you this dream. You know, this, this happens a lot in the Muslim culture. We hear about it all the time. Jesus appearing to someone. There's a story, I was thinking about it again this week. I can't re- recall where I heard it. Actually, Justin, you may, it's, um, it was on a podcast you had sent me. I can't recall if this is the exact account. But there was a Muslim man was having this dream about some man who had a, his phone number inscripted on the back of this man. And this man was bloodied. And then he was crucified. And the man who had this dream, remember, he remembers seeing this cross. And so he finds a Christian because he knew the cross was something with the Christian. And he tells the Christian this dream. And the Christian interprets it and tells him, God's calling your number. He died for your sins. I mean, I, I love that it. it's, so, it's really easy when there's a Joel 2 moment, God moves on someone and it just falls into your lap. Like you didn't even have to preach hard. You didn't have to study. You, didn't have to, you probably didn't even pray. I mean, they're just ready. I love those moments. The third way the Holy Spirit would move in the book of Acts, I call it the 1 Peter 3 reason. Was 1 Peter 3 giving a reason, give a defense for the hope that you have within you? You see this case in point, Acts 17. If you look at Paul's life in the book of Acts, the latter years, in uh, Acts 19, 1, chapter 22, verse 1, chapter 24, verses 24 through 25, chapter 26, verse one. He's giving an answer, he's giving a reason, he's giving a defense for the gospel. So there are going to be times where God will anoint you with the spirit of truth so that you might give a reason for your faith. Are you guys tracking with me? So I would encourage you to read Isaiah 61, to read Joel 2, to read 1 Peter 3. And be ready. We do not know all the things that we are about to step into for Jesus, but what we should know is that our reliance upon the Holy Spirit to be our helper will make all the difference. Number six, the sixth key real. R-E-A-L. Guys, we have to be real with people. We have to be authentic with people. Paul says that it's the love of Christ that would compel him. In 2 Corinthians, he says, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and in godly sincerity. How sincere are we with people? How real are we with people? If, if, if there's anything that this generation can discern quickly, it's fake. 
It's phony. We joke in the office, it's, we call it the car salesman Christian. All right, sorry if you sell cars. Bless you, right? You gotta do your job, right? <clears throat> but we're, we're, we're living in a new, newer development and I get people who come, you know, they wanna sell me the, um, the solar panels and, you know, the pest control and the... Uh, uh, and... The one thing I just always feel, I'm like, I get it, they've got to do their job, you know, they're here selling and whatnot, that's okay. But it always helps if they make you feel like they like you. <laughs> and you're not just a number, their quota. I mean, how often do we just, we want to share the gospel or build a relationship with someone and they're just a number? They're just a cool story to tell that church or to our friend, Right? People smell that. I mean, can you smell it? Okay, well, they can too. <laughs> I have to remind myself this, that people, they're not a project to be managed, but they're a soul to be shepherded. People are not a project that needs your management. No, they're a soul that God created and maybe they just need a little bit of shepherding. Guys, that will make all the difference. The world is not looking for perfect Christians, but for real ones. Number seven, results. Right, all of these started with the letter R. So you've done everything, right? You've done relationship, you've showed respect, you've reasoned with them, you've shared the gospel, redemption, you've relied upon the Holy Spirit, you've been authentic and real. Last but not least is results. Look at the results in this passage, verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, one, some mocked. Two, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And then verse 34, three, however, some men joined him and believed. What are the three results? Some mocked him. Some said, hey, I'm intrigued. Let's talk a little more. And some said, I believe I'll follow can I, can I just maybe take some pressure off of you? The results are not determined by you. <clears throat> the results are not determined by you. I do have a question though. What is the measuring rod, rod of success when it comes to sharing the gospel? How do you measure success in sharing the gospel? Right, we all do some way or somehow. You may not have it written down, but you do. You may measure it by whether the person converts or not. If they convert, success. Well, what happens when they don't? Fail. You may measure it by no, a num the number of people, right? I gotta convert 10 people each week or I failed this week. God doesn't love me this week. Well, you're probably a really depressed, doom and gloom believer right now. You may measure success on whether you offended them or not. 
Like, hey, I preached so hard, like they were just offended. They left mad, like, praise God, that was great. Right? You may do it that way, I don't know. Or you may measure it by whether they liked you. Like, you know, they really liked me. I feel so good. How do you measure success when sharing the gospel? There's two ways of measuring this. At least how I'm going to measure this. Right? In Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of Ephesus. He's departing. And he says, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. How did Paul determine success in his gospel ministry? It's very simple. Did you tell them the real gospel? Did you tell them the real gospel? If you told them the real gospel to the best of your ability because you've studied, you've given yourself to the word, you've yielded to the Holy Spirit, that is successful. It doesn't matter whether they liked you or hated you or received the gospel or turned away from the gospel. Did you tell them the real gospel? That's the question. If you did that, success. That is good. That's pleasing to the Lord. That's what Paul is saying in Acts 20. I've told you the whole counsel of God. I've told you the real truth. The other mark of determining, determining success comes out of John 15 where Jesus says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. Question, were you abiding in Jesus as you were sharing the gospel? Or were you in the flesh? Or were you angry? Or were you extremely frustrated and vengeful? If you were abiding in Jesus as you were sharing the gospel, success. So the way I determine success in sharing the gospel, did I tell them the real gospel? Did I abide in him? Did I do what he wanted me to do? This abiding aspect, guys, is extremely important. It's the subtle difference you'll find in Matthew 7 when Jesus says, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied, we delivered, did miracles. And what's he say? I never knew you. You, you never were abiding in me and, and you didn't allow me to abide in you. There's really no real relationship. Like you're using my name, my name is still powerful. The message is still powerful. You're, you're using that. But like I never really knew you personally. Okay, so the seven keys to engaging in fruitful conversation, relationship, respect, reason, redemption, reliance, real, and results. So since its inception in the first century, the church has always been able 
to adapt to and infiltrate diverse people groups, hostile social settings, and an ever-increasing or an ever-changing world in order to bring light to those who are living in darkness. Now, in America, the time has come for God's church to adapt and infiltrate the world again in order to accomplish our Lord's mission. My prayer is that we may be found standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by our adversaries. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.